Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today, I had a discussion with Michael Steinkraus, the Associate Director of Transformation at the Southern New England Practice Transformation Network. I really found this conversation to be highly informative, and we spoke about how our vision source offices have been able to show CMS the value of the services we provide and what that means for our future. We also discussed interoperability, alternative payment models, and the unique position both locally and nationally that vision source practices are in to continue to grow in the future. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. I really enjoy this conversation, and I think you will as well. Thanks again for being available for this, Michael. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so first, can you sort of give me a, um, a background on how, um, you know, how, how this sort of whole project came to be? You know, in my experience, what I understand from Snepton and, and Vision Source's relationship is that, um, you know, we've got uh, Vision Source has been looking for ways to partner with people who can show the value of what optometry does. And, um, and so how did that come about with Snepton? Maybe, maybe you can tell the story from Snepton's side. When you sure. look at what your projects are, kind of give us a, an idea of what, what you're looking to work with and, and, and do within Snepton. All right, so let me give you a, a brief rundown. So uh, due to MACRA, the passage of MACRA in 2015, which uh, is the uh, Medicare and uh, Chip Reauthorization Act, uh, what it did is it started the push to, from fee-for-service and the sustainable growth rate formula uh, towards value-based payments. And CMS, through the Innovation Office, funded what's called TCPI, or Transforming Clinical Practices Initiative. Don't worry, there's no quiz. Um, no, no, I think that's helpful because, uh, again, sometimes people get bogged down in, in, the, in the acronyms, and when you're not dealing with it every day, it's hard to know. So I think that's important that you do oh, that. Great. Uh, so, yeah, so through TCPI, they uh, created uh, 28, which expanded 31 PTNs, or Practice Transformation Networks. Each of these Practice Transformation Networks was uh, funded to engage with practices and teach them about quality improvement and empower them with the tools to uh, exist and to thrive in a value-based environment. Um, as you probably see on the PAT or the Practice Assessment Tool, uh, there's a whole bunch of questions that are based around uh, sustainable business operations and about patient and family engagement and uh, about quality improvement. And what those are are really stepping stones of our program, the basis for our program, uh, to move practices forward with the skills that CMS believes that they'll need in the future. Uh, so our organization originally got our award and we went to uh, you know, start recruiting, and then we found out that we couldn't recruit any organization that was actively participating in a Medicare ACO. So I guess that pretty much took anyone in Massachusetts off the book. So Michael, did that was that part of the prohibition, or that's just because they they weren't interested in in partnering? How did that like was that a prohibition within the grant? It was a prohibition within the grant because the essentially TCPI wants to work with uh, medium to smaller practices. Uh, that are not already based about with value-based programs um, uh, to get them ready for the future. 
so once that happened is the uh, our organization, I wasn't with the organization at the time, but the organization started reaching out to try and recruit practices as much as possible. So we have a wide array of specialists along with a couple of uh, primary care practices. And then our uh, subawardee is the Yukon Health System. And so we ended up in conversations with uh, Dr. Brian Wadman, uh, who introduced us to uh, Dr. Cabin and Dr. Thamel. And through them, we were able to get in with uh, Paul Williams. And that's where this basically oriented, uh, originated, is that uh, our providence comes from a conversation. And that from there, we built up and we enrolled uh, about 4,000 vision source optometrists and then started working on developing a uh, system for delivering practice transformation at scale. And, um, you know, I'm finding that a lot of, you know, um, the things that we know within our profession, that a lot of it happens from just communication between people who know this person and know that person and, and then taking it into that next step where uh, there's actually action that can get done. From your perspective, um, how has how has working with vision source um, played into that has it been has it been largely easy for for you to work with members um, has it where can we help um, where can I help kind of the, what would be more effective for you or um, when you think about making sure that members have access to what was easy for them to use through Snepton? right so that's a great question um, so uh, one of the core tenets of any quality improvement uh, initiative is that you need engagement throughout the process. And without uh, Vision Source's uh, infrastructure, uh, or sort of the, the spread infrastructure that they have with the administrators, then this really wouldn't have been possible. Uh, remote transformation at scale or remote quality improvement isn't really something that's been done um, at this scale before. And so this is really all experimental. And without the administrators and the infrastructure that's in place, I honestly don't think it would have been possible. Um, so when we first started off is we sort of developed a communication model that was built around sort of a hub and spoke. Is that the administrators were paired with the QAA and the idea was to funnel questions through the administrator to the QAA or the quality improvement advisor, apologies. That's right. That way the administrators would build up a knowledge base uh, as well as, you know, a, you know, an ability to articulate uh, not just what we're trying to push through, but the long-term values of working with a, a program like our own. And so the quality improvement advisors, uh, they work directly with the practices or via the administrator or a combination of both. And so it's really the administrators that drive um, the communication. <clears throat> Do you, um, so, so I'm getting that it sounds like there's not many other models for this, not just within optometry, but within healthcare in general. Uh, maybe there's only a family practice model where you're dealing, you're working with small to medium sized practices with a large network across the country. Is this, is there anything else that you know of that's similar to what you've been able to do with vision source? Uh, there are similar ones, but they're more involved with uh, much larger groups. Um, so if you think of, uh, uh, well, I don't want to name the, the organization. But, sure. Well, actually, let's just say Mayo. Mayo Clinic is one of the PTNs. So Mayo Clinic has their own integrated quality improvement uh, people in their group. I mean, they've been doing it for decades. Uh, so they obviously are spread out all across Ohio and the rest of the country, um, but they already have that integrated system. 
and they're all part of one group. Um, my history is I actually used to work in optometry and ophthalmology for a little short of a decade, but I work mostly in ACOs in large groups. So the infrastructure was already there, was already built, the lines of communication, the reporting lines were already uh, established. Working with a group of independent optometrists where the average practice size is 1.8 clinicians per practice represented a significant challenge. And I think what we've done so far has been absolutely groundbreaking. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think when you think about the the structure of Vision Source, as you already mentioned, that's that's one of the powers of of the network is the the distribution of information um, through people that people already are familiar with, and um, and so when you think about doing some of these things on such a large scale, it is a challenge. The other challenge is that's that makes us different than say Mayo is that they're also clinically integrated while they're sort of scattered across the country. They follow in general, my uh, understanding is similar protocols, similar hospital you know, um, admissions, those sorts of things. So they can, uh, you know, they're already a large network that can do that. So they're they're like a a physician hospital association, right? They can, they can negotiate and do those sorts of things. And there's, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Michael. Yeah. I was going to say they also have the, the benefit of having uh, uh, clinical claims data. Right. We do not because we don't have, you know, 4,000 BAAs. Right. Well, and, and, and that's, that's the next point is, so I guess this will kind of, uh, um, I'm trying to, to stay focused on what we're talking about, but I, that brings up another point that I'm kind of interested in is this is really w- what you're saying is sort of the first time that you have a, uh, affiliation of practices with, with a common goal and kind of a common vision, but they're all individually owned. Right. Um, and, and I think that's a real big power from a, from a standpoint of our network, but it's also, as you said, a, a challenge where, you know, um, Chris Wolf can do something different in his practice if I want to, even though I'm a vision source member, then, you know, somebody who's right down the street, who's also a vision source member and just mm-hmm. de- decides it's not important. And so, um, so first question would be to follow up on what you're saying is um, really probably the most important part is what do you think um, in the future is going to happen with, is there any way, what would be the next step for us to aggregate all the data even beyond emergency avoidance or uh, diabetes, you know, that you would need or that that step did would we need to take another step in that same direction where you're saying, you know, we don't have a BAA. Can you describe that? What would that, what would that look like? Was there something that would be down the road that we could start aggregating the information from claims data um, as a group and utilizing that to tell a different story? So uh, a great question. So uh, one of the limitations of our program is that it does end uh, the end of September of this year. Um, So it would be unlikely that we'd be able to go down the road of getting that data. Uh, So we've actually taken a different route. So in order to uh, quantify the ED avoidance data, uh, the original model was based around the collection of six different diagnoses. Uh, So conjunctivitis, global conjunctivitis, uh, corneal abrasion, uh, corneal uh, injury with uh, foreign body, uh, hordeolum, including chalazion and other uh, lid swelling uh, and infections with the lid and uh, PVD and I believe that's it. And then we also had another group that was called Other. 
And so what we did was we got third-party data sets to actually demonstrate what's being utilized in the emergency department mm -hmm. versus what's being essentially saved by the uh, optometry practices. So we've really had to take uh, not necessarily a scientific approach to it, uh, but more of a matching data sets approach to it because we don't have that data and we're likely unlikely to ever get that data. Um, but if this, our program was extended, which um, there's the possibility of, of us living through a new like TCPI 2.0, but still in our early uh, phases, is we'd obviously look to get uh, clinical measures data uh, and actually be able to show doctors how to work with that uh, to improve on the practices. So, um, so then to kind of amplify your last point about uh, emergency department avoidance, um, can you share, you know, just in general, um, kind of some of the data that you've seen across the country uh, that we've been able to aggregate since October 2017 and kind of what that has translated into in terms of, you know, um, currently that the information we have and then what that information will, you know, benefit the, the practices that have been participating and then maybe even um, what we would do, even whether or not the, it's with snapped in or what would be a next step to continue to further this, this advancing, you know, information, uh, and quality value, uh, proposition that we have. Absolutely. Uh, so when we started back in October, we started with a small pilot of practices in New England, uh, to collect data, to see what the, uh, weighted average or weight ratio was for, um, disease processes that were seen in the office most likely. So conjunctivitis jumps off the bat and Friday afternoon is always a PBD. Um, so what we did is we started tracking that data. Uh, we built out our portal, expanded its, uh, you know, its abilities to capture that data. And we started our initial intervention by letting practices know about this and have them start uh, tracking in early December. Um, this is just sort of a timeline. Then in about January, February, we sent, started sending out the ED avoidance packets, uh, which have the posters. We started doing uh, educational webinars about uh, increasing uh, uh, sort of education for all stakeholders, patients, families, staff, uh, referring providers, and just continued through with that, focusing on uh, increasing access in the practice and getting, you know, really the right care at the right place at the right time. So to quantify that is in the first three uh, months of our pro of the uh, ED avoidance, uh, practices were averaging 18 patients per clinician per month. So we say the, since we don't have a true baseline, we say the intervention was around December when we started pushing the education materials and then followed through February, March when the, the posters went out. So uh, from the baseline, our artificial baseline of 18 uh, per month per clinician. We are now uh, at a sustained 22 patients per clinician per month. Um, so we've seen the, the delta of four patients per clinician per month, which is huge. Yep. Because if you actually do out the numbers, so that's what, uh, four patients per clinician per month, say you have one clinician in your office, uh, you're talking about $3,200 a month in all payer cost savings at a minimum that you're saving. Now, multiply that times the 47,000 optometrists in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then, you know, the, the other side of that from a vision source standpoint would be to say, you know, from a, from a practice standpoint is, you know, four patients per month um, 
added to our practices and what the value of those patients are, and especially if they're, um, you know, I mean, from a, from a short-term standpoint, it would be, let's say that that was an acute situation that never had to have follow-up care and it's just a one-shot deal, mm-hmm. right? That's four more patients. Let's say it were, was $100. You know, I'm, I'm just throwing that number out there. That's 400 bucks a month. But obviously, those, those consultations don't wind up in the emergency department, which may wind up in an ophthalmologist's office or somebody else's office that might not necessarily be a, a vision source practice. Um, and those patients need other follow-up care. Um, so, so you can extrapolate that higher and higher, but at minimum, we're talking probably $400 to the practice's bottom line just by increasing the awareness that they're, that they're putting out from, from a standpoint of uh, this project. Yeah, so all things uh, staying equal, I mean, even if you just look at the, the marginal increase in revenue on a chair throughput uh, calculation, is you're right. If you have four new patients or four patients with a new problem, you're looking at 400 more dollars. Yeah. And even if you- If it's $100, which is, is that's, that's on the low side for sure. But, but anyway, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, that, there's the benefit of the practice right there. You're also, you're uh, saving money for the referring providers. Um, you're providing better access for the patients, better care for the patients, you know, huge co-pays now. The patients yeah. don't have to pay that, not having to find a babysitter and not ending up with six new diseases from sitting in the emergency room for eight hours. Right. And right. Just to sort of answer your original question is what do we do with this data afterwards? So the whole thing with collecting this data and showing it off is sort of to demonstrate the value that you already provide to the medical neighborhood. So you'll see in some areas like uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Filoski down in uh, Delaware, we like to show him off because he's made huge uh, waves with Aldate and working with Aldate to increase his referrals for his network. Uh, it's also happened in, uh, I think it was Dr. Barker in uh, North Carolina um, at UNC. We spoke with her and she was very interested in the uh, closing the referral loop with the vision source practices uh, to increase their referrals and actually to increase their HEDA score so they were getting credit. Um, so it's about using the big data to your advantage. So where do we go next? So at this point, we've demonstrated to CMS that probably by the end of our program that optometrists, um, probably about 1,500 practices reporting, will save roughly $300 million. Yeah, after basically a year and a half. Basically a year and a half. Now, now, Michael, you, you would understand this better than, than I would, and I think a lot of the doctors listening would. Is, is $300 million, does that move the dial for CMS? $300 million doesn't technically move the dial for CMS, but if you extrapolate out that even if we're looking at 1,500 practices, you're talking about close to right. 4,000 doctors. Right. That's less than 10% of the, of the profession. Right. So just uh, chicken scratch, you're talking about $3 billion a year. And that's without uh, an increase. And that moves that's the dial. What we're already doing. Right. So if you're talking about $3 billion plus, say, a, you know, up to 5 or 10% increase, you're telling CMS that you could save them 300 to a $1 billion a year by increasing referrals to you instead of going to the emergency room. Hmm. And that's at the low end. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of why we're sort of building into the next step is we've actually uh, engaged with uh, AOA on uh, limited, limited ways where we've just started some talks and we've actually received funding from uh, CMS and our project uh, to actually build an optometry APM. 
So right now we're still in the early stages. We will be releasing more information about the APM as we develop it, uh, most likely having sort of like a big reveal at the, uh, the exchange come uh, May 1st to the 3rd. So, so can, can you take a step back and when you, we talk about an APN, um, can you describe that a little bit more and how that plays into kind of future uh, healthcare um, initiatives and how that relates to probably, you know, the rank and file, you know, guy that's in his practice all day long. What does that mean to him to be able to participate with something like that? Sure. Uh, so just to go back a little bit, so with macro, the passive and macro practices that either had to move into MIPS, which a lot of practices are familiar with, but because of uh, shifting rules, the threshold keeps going higher. Um, mm-hmm. So it's essentially excluded, I think it's 90 to 92% of optometrists in this past year. Um, or the other pathway of value-based payments that you could go down is an advanced alternative payment model or you know, an a- advanced APM. Mm-hmm. So what these are are payment models where the clinician accepts a small amount of risk in exchange for uh, the possibility of an upside bonus. So you can see sort of in the first year of MIPS, it was the, I believe it was 4% plus or minus 4%. If you didn't do anything, you got a cut. If you did something, you got a small amount of bonus. And that's going up every year. So when four, five, seven, nine percent um, So an APM uh, actually has a lot more flexibility, especially if you design your own because you can design it around something that has meaning for you. So one of the challenges that we've run, come up against is, A, is the EHRs uh, haven't always been in step with the CMS regulations, and they've been fantastic working with us and the Vision Source docs uh, to be able to get the data out of your systems accurately and give you credit for what you do. And B, is that the measures that are available for optometrists are extremely limited and often just uh, overlap ones from other professions that just happen to apply. Uh, so one of the great things about an APM is it lets you design it around uh, measures that uh, work for you. Um, so one of the things we're looking at is, uh, you know, how can we turn ED avoidance into something that benefits optometry? Uh, or, you know, what about, uh, you know, a bundled payment for patients that have Plaquenil? and need to have that, that testing, I think it's every two years. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you take a 5% cut on that. And if you do well on that, you get a bonus across the board for your, your payments for Medicare. Yeah. So, so um, can, let, me, let me try to kind of reframe what you're talking about because I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, a, there's, this, um, there's this idea, and it hasn't been many vision source doctors, but when I'm just in, in general meetings and MIPS comes up and macro comes up, there's sort of this, um, this immediate gut reaction from a lot of doctors that say, look, I've always been doing good care. Mm-hmm. And this, this doesn't really do anything better to advanced care for patients um, in my practice. So, um, but what you're saying is that on some of these alternative based medicine, based payment systems, um, it doesn't, we can think we're doing good care for patients, but, but we have to be able to, to prove it. Right. With MIPS, one of the real big challenges is, as you're saying, is for me to be able to, um, you know, I get to report on my side 
whether or not I'm sending letters to primary care physicians on diabetes or I'm communicating effectively. I'm looking at the optic nerve in terms of patients who have glaucoma. The reality is if you're managing glaucoma patients, you're doing those things. It's whether or not you're using your EHR device appropriately and you're billing enough to Medicare to trigger, you know, being able, being eligible. But the reality is, is that, and, and it would be accurate. I'm sort of asking a question, but the, the reality is, is that at some point, um, payers are not going to pay for instances of care. So they're not going to be paying per, uh, or they're going to be paying less for every single time I see a patient. What they're going to be paying for is kind of the bundled service of caring for that specific condition. Right. And, um, and so right now, because optometry historically, and probably eye care in general, but historically optometry has, has sort of been, in a payer's view, not a big spend because of vision plans or because of our inability to understand, you know, the, uh, or not necessarily our inability, but our lack of, of full recognize, recognizing, a full recognition of the value that we offer to medical payers. Uh, so I think that kind of leads into some other things as well. But I think that what I'm trying to say is that any longer as we're managing some of these more chronic diseases, maybe glaucoma falls into their Plaquenil, as you said, falls into there. Even some other things like uh, Galenia, which um, Dr. Williams kind of had been working to develop my treatment monitor. Those sorts of things where you're getting sort of this global payment that if you're adhering to doing X, Y, and Z, which we already are doing, then that bonus would, would apply to kind of all of our services or just that payment for that service that we're taking um, what, what do you see? How does that work in other so, professions? Well, it, depends, it depends on your model and depends whether the uh, APM or the contract is with Medicare or if it's with a private payer. Okay. So typically private payers have better access to your clinical, uh, uh, clinical data uh, at a much faster rate. So uh, Medicare has, I think, a, a two or three quarter delay in their clinical data. So if we go down the route of developing an alternative payment methodology for optometry, and you're correct that eventually everyone wants to move to the bundled payments, or as you already see them in hospitals, DRG or diagnosis-related groups, where you get you know two thousand dollars for uh, a healthy delivery, for example. Right. It's not actually the amount, but um, is that depending on the payer, they'll decide you know what the risk corridor is for your practice. Um, so maybe if you they set the bar at uh, 10 ED visits that you avoid a month. If you drop below 10, maybe they'll take a, a 2% off of the top for um, the payments that they pay you that month. But if you go over 10, then you, you may be eligible for a bonus. So this is, these are all the different avenues that mm. we're working out now um, for both Medicare as well as private payers uh, to determine what is the most desirable and the most likely to be up, adopted uh, alternative payment model uh, for optometry. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, and so, you know, obviously if you have a crystal ball, you know, is this, you know, cause there's always going to be people that think I don't have to deal with this until I have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a crystal ball, is this going to be something that's going to be realistic in two years, in five years, in 10 years? What, what do you think? So the APM, uh, we aim to have a submission before the end of this year, mm. um, but the, the 
actual processing, voting, and going through everything else, the public commenting is about six months. So the actual APM development will run past the end of our grant year. So we have to figure out what we do after that. Um, but sort of the bigger picture is that the private payers, the Blue Cross, the Blue Shields, the Anthem, everyone else like that, uh, they're already gonna be making these changes based on data. And I, I, to use Paul Williams' example, the Rhode Island Vision Source practice that was kicked out of Blue Cross Blue Shield is they were kicked out because their hospital readmission rate for congestive heart failure was too high. Hmm. And that is because they were assigned that patient as the panel because the patient didn't have the PCP. So, so the optometrist got assigned as the PCP for that? For right. That they were the highest billing for that year for that patient aside from the hospital. And so basically they had to go back and say, hey, you're looking at this data wrong. Um, you know, the, the optometrist is not admitting the patient for congestive heart failure. Um, so they end up getting back on the panel. So what we see from this is that they're looking at the data already. They don't quite know what they're looking at but they're gonna figure it out eventually. And then you're gonna have these managed care contracts from these private payers um, that you're really gonna to have to figure out. And you know, if the, a national APM is a way to uh, simplify this whole thing, that's great. For the small practice that doesn't hit the MIPS threshold and you know, is, you know, doesn't wanna accept the downside risk of an APM, uh, they can just sort of keep on doing what they're doing until it's too late. Uh, I think there's been a lot of lead up into this. We had how many, what, six years of PQRS, or the Physician Quality Reporting System. Uh, we have four years of TCPI and uh, leading into MIPS. Is Everything is trending in this direction, is that they, I think if you look at it from CMS's perspective or Medicare's perspective, is that They've invested billions, well, not quite billions, but hundreds of millions of dollars, probably billions at this point, uh, actually yeah, billions, into getting practices ready and providing practices the tools to participate in these programs. And they wanna see a return on their investment. So the only way they really have to measure the quality that you're providing is by looking at your numbers. And from what we've seen from the beginning of our uh, interactions with Vision Source to now, especially with the diabetes data where the aggregate um, score was I think 39% performance rate, to now it's over 84%, is that you're doing the work, you're just not getting credit for it. Right. And when CMS comes down and looks at the data, if they look at that data and see 39%, they're not gonna listen to what you have to say about the care you have for your patients they're gonna say, well, you're doing X and we're gonna pay you Y because you're only doing X. Right. Um, so it's, it's a lot of it is about learning to work with big data and get ready to work with big data because change is coming. So, uh, um, you know, so I'm a, I'm a, obviously this, this podcast is, is mainly for, was for Vision Source members, but I'm a huge um, supporter of the AOA. I think they, they offer us a, a you know, unique, um, ability to do things that we that vision source isn't built for um, but the my concern is as i as I think through you know one of the challenges is that you know from an AOA standpoint, we represent all ods across the country, no matter how they choose to practice and no matter what they want to limit their practice on um, whereas in general, I think um, 
my experience with uh, vision source optometrists are, is that they tend to be um, higher level providers in the sense of, you know, managing more disease, not necessarily sending patients to somebody else for secondary care. They're not usually just based, you know, based solely on refractive care, which I can't necessarily say from a, which is, I'm not knocking that, that practice modality. It's just, when you look at all of the AOA, I think there's a lot more people that are in, in practices where they're just basically doing refractive care. And so, go, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, is, uh, and that's what we've experienced through it with Vision Source. And that, that's why we're so excited to work with Vision Source because they're so medically oriented. Is that there's, uh, with other group, you may not have been able to demonstrate the uh, ED utilization and the increased utilization um, because they may just refer them on to the emergency room or they may just, you know, push them off onto ophthalmology. Um, it's the uh, skill set and the independence of your doctors that have allowed uh, your group to demonstrate this value. Um, and one of the things that I just really want to emphasize is that as we develop the APM, as we uh, work with Vision Source, we're really geared towards medical optometry going forward is, uh, you know, I think the number that was thrown out the other day is that, you know, there's going to be a 20% increase in medical utilization for optometry in the next, you know, five years. Um, but, you know, we keep hearing that, you know, medical, 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 and we feel that that's the way going down the road for optometry to head because it, it increases your integration into the medical neighborhood. With inter increased interoperability, it improves the care of patients. It reduces the total cost of the care, bends the cost cur uh, curve down, and there's also disruptive entrance into the retail side. Yeah, we absolutely, and and we've seen that in our own practice. Where if you look over time, you know, the main I, I certainly think from a vision source standpoint and from a private practice standpoint, you know, a lot of these people are worried about um, about. I think a lot of people in general are worried about losing their refractive care to online entities and those sorts of things. I still think that we do that better than anybody else. And so I think if we do it well, we're still going to have a niche, but what we'll see in addition to that is this growth of, of the medical side of our practices. And we've certainly seen that uh, in our practice. What about, I want, I want to back up a little bit because um, this term interoperability, um, I, I, I'm not trying to pinhole you or anything like that. I just don't fully understand what it means. I think I know what it means. And I think a lot of us think we know what it means, but um, can you, can you kind of describe why that's important, what it really is and, and how it kind of plays into all of this? Yeah, absolutely. So interoperability uh, really is uh, just a phrase uh, that really defines the ability to provide holistic care or care for the whole patient. It's the idea that, uh, you know, in anywhere you go, uh, that doctor will have the, the correct information about you to provide you the care that you need. You know, reduction of testing, uh, reduction of errors, and overall reduction in costs. So uh, the, the initial step for this for uh, Medicare was to do meaningful use. Basically, empower everyone with an EHR that won. <laughs> Um, next, they advanced, when we went to MIPS, they called the category ACI, or Advancing Care Improvement. And even this new administration has changed it again, and now it's called PI, or Promoting Interoperability. And so the way the most specifically applies to optometry is the closing the referral loop. 
is sending the messages back to the primary care doctors. They know that the exam has been done. It's good for you because you know, you're already doing the work, you wanna get credit for it. And it's good for the primary care because their HEDIS measure actually, um, which is a performance measure around quality, uh, they get paid based on the number of patients you report back to them. So what, why is this really important in the big picture is, you know, is CMS sort of, uh, I'm gonna say drop the ball, but you know, I'm gonna say drop the ball because I don't wanna get right. in trouble. With air quotes. With air quotes. Yeah. Um, is that when they pushed out meaningful use, they didn't have a set specifications that they wanted practices to use uh, for their systems. So you saw a whole bunch of mom and pop shops open up and basically rush something out as quickly as possible. And we've seen a lot of those smaller EHRs just sort of go wayside and disappear. Is interoperability, is the ability for systems to talk to each other uh, was never in the forefront and now we're trying to catch up. And so the ability for systems to talk to each other and I'm just gonna say, uh, because most of people are probably familiar with them, like no two, right. is they are, their whole talk is about taking facts out of healthcare, which I couldn't support more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's that, you know, these messages are easy to transfer and to close and to send a message back, but you have to have a way that's consistent across systems and that can talk to different systems. So you know that work's being done without essentially having to hire someone else to, you know, go through a file pile of faxes on Monday morning and enter it in manually. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, so I know you're not representing no two here, but we started using no two. And, um, you know, the first thing that I think through is, is the, 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 the tagline, like you're saying is eliminate faxes mm -hmm. and, you know, eliminate the paper fax system. But, um, but really if we're working toward interoperability, so we've been working with no two, we've integrated it. Um, and within our team, I think the, the biggest thing was, well, this isn't any simpler because we're, we're just moving um, information from one place to the next. What we've seen is it actually is a little bit more simple, but that's not really the value, right? The, the, the tagline we're seeing from no two is that, is that we're eliminating the fax machine. But the real value is that when I send information to say a primary care physician about the diabetes patient uh, that I just saw that we're sharing, I can know that that information got to them. So there's no... Yes. So there's no, no more, well, Sally in, in our fax machine didn't take the fax and put it in the patient's chart and the physician didn't review it. So they didn't check the box. It's, it's, I can say right away, it was sent this date. It was received this date and we know you have it. Is that, is that part of interoperability? Absolutely. Yeah. It's really the, the core tenor of interoperability is, is a making sure that the messages go from point A to point B, whether it's a referral or the closing of the referral loop. And B, it's, it's really about accountability yep. and accuracy because you can send uh, faxes all day long to a practice, but if you don't know that they're, you know, they changed the fax number, you know, that practice is losing all that information and they're losing those points in their HEDA scores and, you know, it may damage your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So, let me ask a few more follow-up questions then. So, you know, in terms of, um, of what, you know, this value, you, you, I'm backing way up because the value that we have shown or that you think we will ultimately be able to show through the entire process 
is about a $300 million savings and just an emergency department avoidance. Ballpark, yeah. Uh, does that translate? So besides the, the numbers that we talked about in terms of, in, you know, four patients on average per month per clinician and what that does to our, you know, our, our revenue stream in our practice and also holding on to those patients over time, is there any other bonuses or incentives that CMS has, has said, okay, now you've participated with Snepton vision source offices. Here's, here's um, a bonus for, for doing that. Is there anything else that, that is on the horizon or that, that we, we will see because of that? So uh, in sort of the short term is um, just by participating with us is practices that were MIPS eligible actually got bonus points uh, in the interoperability category. Uh, okay. So the first year of participation in 2017, you're actually eligible for no negative penalty just by working with us. Um, so I think that's really the, the main driver avenue that CMS was going down at first. Um, the long-term value that we think that our two organizations have collaborated to develop is the accuracy in the data in the diabetes eye exam and the new data set of the diabetes, or not diabetes, but the ED avoidance. Um, so CMS is extremely interested in ED avoidance, not just in optometry, but also in other fields as well, physical therapy, um, keeping kids with upper respiratory infections out of the emergency room and everything else like that. Um, but I think what you're trying to get to is how does Vision Source capitalize on this in the, um, the long term as well as um, are there any other incentives coming down the pipeline for participation? Right, right, exactly. And, um, so I think Vision Source, uh, it, since it is your data, I believe you're going to end up with uh, the ability to use that data to either negotiate national contracts um, basically before anyone else or as you said, with, I keep uh, Referencing Jeff Lasky's, he's already doing it with Alday down in, um, in Delaware, and they're across 21 states now. Is it's the ability to demonstrate that you can work with data as well as demonstrate value. Um, another thing which I think you may be alluding to is the, uh, the recent approval of uh, incentive payments to practices uh, through the end of our program. Is is that what you're? Yeah, I think all of those things that you've hit on, I think are, are important for members to know um, who have been doing it. And then why would you continue doing it? Is So yeah, I think you've, you've hit on those things. Go ahead. So, so just to elaborate a little bit. So in the short term value um, to drive engagement, which I said before is basically the, the most difficult thing to do in quality improvement, especially remotely, is we've been approved to provide incentive payments to practices. The way I like to look at it is we're paying for your time. Um, and we'll be sending out some messaging in the next week or two mm -hmm. uh, about the exact details, but essentially for practices to continue to submit their data on a regular basis, they'll receive an incentive payment. And if they continue to progress through our program, they'll receive another payment on top of that. And so a significant size of, uh, of money, but it is a, a fixed pool. Uh, the second thing we're doing is we are spending a significant amount of money to develop the APM for optometry. And the third thing that we're doing is we actually have funding. Um, we're actually putting out an RFQ uh, to find a vendor to promote and to increase interoperability between uh, at least the three largest EHRs in the vision source market uh, with PCP EHR systems like Epic, Cerner, and others. Mm -hmm. So, so in that sense, so we're coming back to interoperability. In that sense, if it's fully functional, 
it would actually be a, a, a situation where my EHR would directly communicate and pull data from, say, the PCP's EHR in terms of reviewing medications, those sorts of things. So the PCP would know, okay, I put this patient on Travitan or Timolol, mm-hmm. and, and then I can know, okay, yesterday this patient just had this new high blood pressure medication, and uh, and we don't necessarily have to go through this, these you know air quotes of unknown high blood pressure medication within right. the EHR. Exactly. Is that the idea is that um, we're going to focus on the interoperability. So it pulls and pushes to your EHR when you have a shared patient. So in, you have a patient come in with a closed angle and the pressure is 50 and you decide to throw them on Diamox. Right. Well, the patient never told you that they have a history of kidney stones. Well, right. yep. I mean, this really just improves care across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So, um, okay. Well, what, let me ask you this then, Mike, this is kind of running out of our our time. I want to be respectful of your time for this, this first call. Um, what additional things do you see on the horizon in terms of that we haven't discussed in terms of maybe payers or technologies or patient expectations that, uh, that private practice optometrists should, should keep in the forefront of their minds, um, in terms of what, what they should continue to work for in serving our patients. So I honestly think that the, the best way to continue serving your patients is to continue doing what you're doing, is providing extremely high value of care, a higher level of access, and uh, a very personal touch. So one of the things that I've worked with lots of different specialties that optometrists have, from my experience, is they have the time to spend with the patient and actually listen to them and provide the holistic care, um, whether it's you know making a call to their PCP or making a call to someone else to find out exactly what's going on, rather than you know basically hitting a timer and getting them out the door in eight minutes. Right. If we can provide you with any assistance in essentially building out the utilization of medical optometry in the future, that's better for everyone. That's better for the referrers. It's better for you know, the payers, and it's better for optometry, I feel. I mean, that's, that's basically what I want you to get out of it. Yeah, excellent. Well, I think what we can, you know, we can leave it there. I, I do probably have a, a whole bunch of, of other questions. Let me ask you one last thing in terms of all, so Paul Williams is, is definitely on, on my list of people to talk to um, because he's doing so many other things within sharing this, you know, the, the value and the data with other payers across the country. Um, But is there other people um, that, is there two or three other docs that you've been able to work with that you think, you know, just in general, you should talk to them um, that, you know, other companies that, that you think would be worthwhile for our members to, to hear what they're doing and how, how that can impact our, our practices. So I, I can't really recommend companies because I probably shouldn't have said no to in the first. No, it's okay. It's okay. Existing relationship uh, because just the nature of our grant, we're not supposed to be promoting any one person over another uh, without a fully vetted sure. company. Um, is no two would be just an example of a company that does interoperability. Yeah. yeah, you could also do the, your your state health exchange if you have one. Okay. The I would definitely talk to Dr. Holowski. Um, just because of the work that he's done with Aldade. Uh, it was around the ED avoidance as well as working with ophthalmologists to uh, reduce the utilization of uh, Lucentis or Ilea in favor of going back to Avastin. 
um, which as we most of us know has uh, stays in the eye for much longer and has relatively the same results. Um, and probably uh, Dave Cabin has a really good perspective on this. Uh, he's been doing it for a while. And uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch. Oh, that's of good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a great start. That's a great start. I, you know, I have this list of people that, that I want to talk to and I always, and Dave's on that. Um, and Jeff is now on that. Um, because I forgot he was doing some of that stuff. So that's why I asked the question. Um, so anyway, um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to spend with us. And I think it's going to be really valuable for our members, not just in Nebraska and South Dakota, but um, other members that, that have the opportunity to listen to this. I think it'll be worth their time. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. Have a great day. You too.